Please take your Bibles once again and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Now, everything that happens at Christmas happens as a result of this text that we're going to look at this morning. Everything that happens at Christmas happens uh, in fulfillment of the promise that is made in this verse. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Uh, You understand the context? You know that by their sin, our first parents plunge the human race into a state of unimaginable horror. The horror of being separated from their creator and the horror of being under the condemnation of their judge. But now, in this text and in this situation, God confronts these two fallen human beings, confronts them in their sin, and on this very darkest of days, we have a ray of brilliant sunshine that really pierces that darkness. And it's the promise of a coming one. It's the promise of one who would come to rescue souls and who would be the head of a new and redeemed race. And as we think for a few moments about this promise, we're going to discover a number of wonderful truths about our God. And the first truth is this, God's initiative. That's the first thing we think about, the first thing that strikes us about God. It's God's initiative, because you notice in the text, it says, I will. That's where everything good for us starts. Prior to that, everything is dark and bleak and horrific. But then everything good that could ever happen to us begins with that extraordinary statement. God says, I will. I am going to do something. God will step in and do something. God initiates in this text. The initiative lies with God alone. It does not lie with us. It's not that we see our need and realize that something needs to be done and we call upon God. No, the initiative begins with God. We know the initiative always begins with God because, among other things, Adam and Eve are hiding. You see that in verse 8. Adam and Eve hide from God. They don't run to God. In their sin, they run from God. And man always hides from God. And man would keep running were he left to himself. If you are here today, it's because God has done something. 
Maybe you're still seeking God. If there's a seeking of God in you, it's because God has begun something in you. He's initiated something in you. It always begins with God. People will always keep going astray if they are left to themselves. And they would keep running right into hell, left to themselves. And even in hell, they'll keep running away from God. That rebellion that was characteristic of life will continue in hell. But now God takes steps to rectify things. And God takes steps to rescue people. And he says, I will. And all throughout scripture we know, and all throughout your life, if you're a Christian, you know this, that it's always God's initiative, your conversion. Those of us who are Christians here, your conversion is a result of God's initiative. It started with God. We sing this, I sought the Lord and afterward I found he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. The reason you sought God, the reason you believed in Christ was because of the initiative taken by God himself. I know in my conversion, I very simply was not seeking God. I was seeking ways to persecute the people of God, and I was seeking ways to undermine any work of God. I was seeking those things, but I was not seeking God. Romans 3.11 says, There is none who understands, and there is none who seeks after God. Now, there are people we know, perhaps, who who speak of our generation and they tell us that, you know, all around us there are people who are seeking after God. And the fact is that they're wrong. The Bible is very clear. They do not seek God. Now, they seek other things. They seek all kinds of replacements for God. They seek all kinds of other gods that somehow will fulfill their need and will fill up the God-shaped vacuum in their soul. But they're looking for those things in order to replace the true God. They're running after other gods because they want to get away from the true God. And so they're not seeking God. They're seeking a replacement for God. And the reason is because John chapter 3 tells us that men love darkness and they hate the light. They love opposition to God. They love rebellion against God. They're not interested in God himself. They like the things that God does. They like the blessings that God pours out. They like these kinds of things, but it's God himself that they resent and resist and against whom they rebel. By nature, people do not seek God, and they will not seek God. C.S. Lewis said, uh, made a comment about people who think that people seek God. He says, oh no, he says, they might as well have talked about a mouse search for the cat. Mice don't search for cats. People don't run after God. They run away from God. A man by the name of Thomas Nagel, who's professor of philosophy and law at uh, New York University. And uh, he wrote some time ago, he said, It isn't just uh, that I don't believe in God, 
and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope that there is not a God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. You see, there's hostility towards God. There's opposition to God. And uh, it's interesting that Mark, uh, Mark Twain Mark Twain said with regard to the Bible, he says, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that trouble me, but the parts that I do. You see, Paul's right. There's hostility towards God in the heart of men. And someone like Twain reads the Bible. He, you know, I understand this. I understand what Jesus is saying about himself and about sin. I don't like that. And they rebel against it. So, The glory of the gospel is this, that God doesn't leave us in that rebellion. The glory of the gospel is that now God says, in light of this horrendous situation, I will, I'm going to do something. And God takes the initiative. And had he not taken the initiative, we would all be left in our sin and we would all be left in the darkness of our iniquity. Imagine a world where God, Well, where God doesn't say, I will. Where God doesn't take the initiative. Where God doesn't set in motion a plan of salvation. Imagine that. Imagine a world where no one is chosen to be saved. And understand then that God is entirely just. And we would be eternally condemned. Had God not said, I will do this. If he had simply decided not to say that and not to do that, we all go to hell. And that justly and that eternally. So how wonderful then to be able to recognize immediately God's initiative. Thank God for that. Secondly, God's preparation God's preparation. This fall that happens in chapter 3 doesn't take God by surprise. God's all prepared. In chapter 1, when God created, he knew what was going to happen in chapter 3. He knew about the fall and he knew about what they would decide and he knew about all the consequences and he knew about all the suffering and all of this doesn't come as a shock to God, and he doesn't have to pivot at that point and say, oh my, what am I going to do now? I'm going to have to come up with some plan B in order to cope with the shock of their surprise decision. Not at all. God was completely prepared. Now, the question is, does this make our position as Christians difficult? Because you ask yourself at that point, If God knew about the fall, then why didn't he stop it? If God knew the fall was going to happen, why didn't he prevent it? And if he knew about the fall and the consequent suffering, and we are very familiar with all the suffering in the world, if that's the case and God knew about it, why why did he not even not create? Because he knew what would result. And the suffering that would come. I mean, if, if you and I could stop the fall, 
Wouldn't we do it? If we could prevent the suffering that we see in the world, wouldn't you do that? Well, let me be frank with you. I I don't have a great answer to that. And I find that very often when we evangelicals try and wrestle with that, uh, our answers tend to be a little lame. But I do know this. I know that God knows best. And I know that we do not. And I know that we need to get off our high horse where we sit in judgment of God and we need to bow before him and say, Lord, you do all things well. And we need to remember what Paul says when he says, who are you, O man, to judge God? And so in humility, we must bow before God. And in humility, we must recognize that that God knows best. And we must, in humility, recognize that whatever plan God puts into effect is a plan that is perfect. And with our sin-darkened minds, we have great difficulty understanding. And we just don't get it. And what's called for is trust. And so, yes, we don't have all the answers to this, but we know that God does. We don't know all the rights and wrongs of this, but we know that God is righteous and the God of all the earth will do right. We know that. And we know that His plan is the best plan. And we know that God was entirely and completely prepared. And this was all part of His plan. He was prepared. This is the preparation of God. For instance, take a look at Revelation chapter 13, Revelation 13 and verse 8. And you see just how absolutely prepared God was. Revelation 13 and verse 8. Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written in the, before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Now here's a problem with the ESV, one of the few problems that I found. Um, But here's the problem. The question here is, when you find the phrase, uh, before the foundation of the world, what is that connected to? Is it connected to written, the word written, or is it connected to the word slain? The Old King James, New King James, we find that Jesus is described here as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And the ESV and a few other translations take it in a different way and take the word before the phrase before the foundation of the world connected with written. Your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, why does the ESV and why do a few other translations have that? Well, the problem is, you see, the natural syntax of the passage connects that phrase with slain. It should be slain before the foundation of the world. So why do they connect it with written? Well, it's because in Revelation 17, 8, that's what it says. It says, written before the foundation of the world. Their names were written before the foundation of the world. And so because of what's written in Revelation 17, that's how they translate it here. 
But the fact is, God is doing more before the foundation of the world than just writing names down. He's also got this entire glorious plan uh, about to be brought into effect. And Jesus is the lamb who was slain from fo- before the foundation of the world. That was always going to be the case. That was part of God's eternal plan. It's part of his decree. It's part of his eternal counsels. And so that's the way it should be translated here. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And why am I pressing that? Well, just to show you that, as I've been saying, God is prepared. This isn't all a shock to him. This isn't all a surprise. He's not just trying to figure out on the go here what to do. This is part of the eternal counsels of God. God was prepared. He's chosen a people. There's been an agreement that the Son will come, the Spirit will indwell, and the Spirit will sanctify and apply to them the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. These are the eternal counsels of God. He's entirely prepared. God can't be shocked and surprised. You see, the wonderful thing is that what's true of Genesis chapter 3 in that situation is true of all of life for us. And all those things that shock you in your life, and there are things that shock us, all those things that take you unawares, All those situations that come out of left field and take you and they blindside you and you feel shocked and surprised. Nothing takes God by surprise. God is prepared. It's all part of his plan. And so we see then God's initiative. We see God's preparation. And thirdly, we see God's action. God's action. Here is God's action. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put... Hostility between you and the woman. This is an action, then, that should fill us with thanksgiving and praise. Enmity is emphasized in this sentence. Enmity, I will put. And enmity is a word that means hostility. And it means that God is going to see that they are no longer friends. That the woman and the devil are no longer friends. You have to remember that Eve was treating the devil. Of course, the serpent is the devil. Eve was treating the serpent, treating the devil like a friend. They were on good terms. She took his advice. She listened to his counsel. She took his word over God's word. And uh, you have to know that becoming friends with the devil and listening to the Teaching and the perspective of the devil is to oppose God, is to be an enemy of God. James 4.4 4 says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If you go their way, if you live as they live, if you prioritize as they prioritize, if everything about you is conformed to the way people are in the world, you're an enemy of God. And with this, God says, I'm going to put an end to that. Now, if these things had continued, if Eve had continued to be a friend of the devil, then how terrible would that situation have been? How terrible to be in good terms with the devil. John 8, 44, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. 
He's talking, by the way, to religious leaders. You imagine how horrific it is if God were to say to you, you are of your father, the devil. If there is an embodiment of evil, it's the devil. And to be able to say to a person, you belong to him. You are of your father, the devil. How horrendous. But thanks be to God, he doesn't allow that to continue. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. There's going to be hostility between you and her, and her seed and your seed. And that's precisely what happens. Jesus says later on, he says, the world will hate you. Now he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to his followers. And he says, the world will hate you, and it will hate you because it hates me. So there's that hostility that God's talking about. Hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. You see, the Christian now, what is a Christian? Well, a Christian is someone whose position has entirely changed. He was, or she was, a friend of the devil. He was, or she was, in the domain of darkness, living in sin and living in darkness. But everything's changed when you become a Christian. You are translated. That is, you're taken from here and you're put here. You're translated from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. Everything's changed. Your entire position has been changed. You were living in sin and loving the darkness. Now you're living in righteousness and loving the Lord. Everything's changed. Now there's hostility. There's enmity between the seed of the devil and the seed of the woman. And you belong to God. If you're a Christian, you belong to God. And that's why in the world, you don't expect to be well-treated. It's only North American Christians who think they should be well-treated by the world. That's not what the Bible says. Expect persecution. Expect opposition. Expect to be badly treated. Jesus himself said, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. That's because God graciously made sure that we will not be all the days of our lives friends of wickedness. Now remember, again, God didn't have to do this. He could have left things as they were at the end of verse 14. He could have just left us to languish and while away our existence in the arms of Satan. He could have left you there, which would have been horrific because there's a lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels and his friends. But God's put enmity between you and the one who used to be your master. God's, God's action is a gracious action, you see. Fourthly, we see God's plan. Uh, now, what was God's plan? Well, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So what does God's plan involve? Well, it involves at least three things. It involves, the, first of all, the fact that there will be two peoples. In history and down through the ages, there will be two peoples. In the world today... There are two kinds of people. 
It started in Genesis chapter 3, Genesis 4. It started there. Two kinds of people in the world. Still true today, only two kinds of people in the world. The seed of the devil and the seed of the woman. Now, obviously, this is not literal. The devil doesn't have actual children because he's a spirit. He's not a body. But there are people then, physical people like us, who in a spiritual sense were children of the devil. Were like the devil. Genesis chapter 4, for instance, Cain, suddenly we realize Cain's like his father the devil. Because we see in his actions, what does he do? Well, he kills his brother. The first murderer. He puts his own brother to death. And then we read uh, in 1 John 3.12 that it says of Cain that um, he was of the wicked one. Why did he do what he did? Well, it's because he was fallen, because he's sinful, and because he belongs to the wicked one. He is of his father, the devil. And Jesus, as I said earlier, says of even the religious people in his day, they are of their father, the devil. So there are these people. They belong to the devil. If you're not a Christian, so do you. And then there are the righteous ones. Then there are the, well, the seed of the woman, uh, the people who, who call upon God. Because once you get to chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4, you see in verse uh, 26... At, the, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So now, here's the second group of people. Those who call upon the name of the Lord. Those who begin to trust in God. Those who believe in a coming Savior who will save people from their sins. So there is what Augustine called the city of man. Oh, they follow the wicked one. And the city of God. These are the people who trust in the Lord. There are two kinds of people. And in this room today, there are two kinds of people. And here's the question. Which are you? Which are you? Are you in the city of man, these people who belong to the devil? Or are you in the city of God, these people who follow the Lord? Have you been forgiven of your sins? Have you trusted in Christ? Are you forgiven and destined for glory? Or are you still in your sins and destined for hell? Where do you stand? To whom do you belong today? There are only two kinds of people. Secondly, there would be one seed. There are two kinds of people. There's one seed. You'll notice in verse 15, there's a shift from plural to singular. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, that's plural, and between her offspring, obviously involves multitudes of people. And then it says he, and he, who's the he? And he shall bruise, and you shall bruise his. Talking about some, some individual is introduced there. And Paul tells us in Galatians who that is. He says, it's Jesus. God is saying, I'm going to 
put enmity between your offspring and her offspring, and I'm going to send someone, and he's going to do this. And that someone is Jesus. Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his, his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, who is the Christ, the Lord Jesus. So there would be two peoples. There'd be one Savior, one seed, and thirdly, there'll be one victory. There'll be one victory. Notice in verse 15 again, the head of the serpent will be crushed. You see where it says that he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. It's the same word, the word bruise is same. In in both cases, it's the same word, but the difference is where that bruise takes place. The difference is where the blow is administered. The blow that comes to the individual, the Savior, it hits his heel. The blow strikes the serpent in his head. Take time later on to read Colossians 2, 14 and 15. And there Paul says that this crushing, this bruising of the head took place on the cross. There on the cross was a crucial victory. There was a triumph the proportions of which we don't even have any idea of. There was a a victory of extraordinary power and implication because there on the cross, the powers of darkness were destroyed. They were vanquished. Jesus on the cross crushes the head of the serpent. Now, what this tells us is that that's what was necessary to save us. Jesus dying on the cross, and in that way, he saves the people. In that way, by dying on the cross, that's what it took in order for him to gain the victory, in order for him to save the people, in order for us to be forgiven and to go to heaven. It could not possibly be by anything we do. Couldn't be by education, or by money, or by therapy, or by pilgrimages, or by human effort. We can't save ourselves. You cannot save yourself. It must be by the extraordinary work of the one whom God promised to send in this text. We have to be saved by the extraordinary work of the promised Messiah, the long-expected Jesus. And when he comes, as he did, he will save. That's the only hope of sinners like us. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The writer of Hebrews is talking about the same thing as Genesis 3.15. Through his death, He would destroy the power of the devil and save us. If you're to be saved then, you can't do it on your own. You must trust this one who was promised here. The one whose birth we celebrate in these days. God's God's tremendous plan of salvation. It involves those elements. Fifthly, almost done, God's grace. 
I have to say something about grace again. Has to be about grace. Because this is all of grace. This is all undeserved. If this is the plan of God, there are going to be two people. There's going to be one seed, one Savior, who will crush the head of the serpent and by his death, I mean by his suffering, save us. He didn't have to do that. This was all grace. You see, this is also the key then, if you wrestle with election, if you wonder and struggle with that, why does God choose some and not others? Or perhaps you wrestle with why are there people in the world who've never heard the gospel? They live and die, but they've never heard the gospel. How is that fair? How is that right? You see, you need to come back to this kind of proposition. And you need to remember that that God is under no obligation to pronounce what he pronounces in verse 15. He doesn't have to say this. He doesn't have to plan this. He doesn't have to do this. He didn't have to choose anybody. He didn't have to send Jesus at all. And you see, no one has the right to hear the gospel because no one has the right that there should be a gospel. You see, you can't say someone has a right to hear the gospel when they don't even have a right that God should see to it that there is a gospel. We have no rights in this. And so then in grace, God chooses to save. And in grace, he chooses to send Jesus in order to save those whom he's chosen. It's all grace. Lastly, God's power. I don't know if you've ever made a promise you didn't keep. Ever made a promise that you tried to keep but you couldn't. I'm sure that's True of all of us. It's never true of God. And this promise here, he kept. You can go and read Colossians 2.14 and 15. You can go and meditate this afternoon on Hebrews 2.14. And all the plethora of other New Testament verses that show that how God promised in the Old Testament, he fulfilled. And he sent a son. And his son saved as promised. And the head of the serpent was crushed. As promised, God has that power. No one can stop him. No one can stay his hand. When God says, I'm going to do this, I will do this, he will do it. Nobody can prevent him. And the results are tremendous. The results are glorious. And in fact, I think Adam believed this. And Adam, I think, was saved for a long time. I wondered whether Adam actually was saved. I should just have read on further in the chapter. Chapter 3 and verse 20 says, The man called his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. She's the mother of all living in one sense, but in another sense as well. She's the mother of all living in that we all come from her, from the two of them, but also in the sense of what the context speaks of, that real life now comes from the seed of the woman. 
And the name Eve means living or making alive. So why does the man call his wife's name Eve? I think it's because it's because he believed God's promise. It would be life. I mean, now I understand that there's death because of sin, but there's going to be life and not just more people, but there's going to be people who are alive spiritually, people who know their God, whom to know is life eternal. There's life, as God promised, through the coming one. We know him as Jesus. Adam believed. And if you're a Christian, you'll see him in heaven. But now we close with this. Will you believe? I really think Adam believed. I know many of us here have believed. Now we're Christians. This promise is wonderful for us. It's meant our salvation. We're going to be in heaven. I think we'll see Adam, we'll see Eve. But now the real question is, what about you? Will you believe? Will you trust in the Lord Jesus today? You know, you're not guaranteed to see Christmas Day. I need to tell you that. You can can be looking forward to it. You can say, oh, it's going to be a great day. We're going to do this and that. But, you know, you're not guaranteed to see Christmas Day. You're not guaranteed to see the end of this day. So that's why this question now is so important. Because if you die without Christ, you go straight to hell. So will you believe in the Lord Jesus for the saving of your soul? For the forgiveness of your sins? You need to be rescued, you see. You need to be helped. You need to be saved. You need God to come and in mercy forgive you. You need God to come and be kind and rescue you. That's what you need. You need to come and ask him to save you. You need to turn from your sin and trust the Lord Jesus for your salvation. Whether you're here in this room or whether you're watching, that's what you need to do today and that's what you need to do now. I mean right now. You don't have a moment to waste. You can't put it off one hour. Because everything is at stake here. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Philippian jailer said to Paul, what do I have to do to be saved? Paul didn't give him a list of things to to do and pilgrimages to take and money to dedicate to the church and all. He simply said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's what I'm saying to you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you, you will be saved. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, how we thank you for your goodness to us, how we praise you for sending a Savior, how we plead that this day that Savior might become ever more precious to us, and that uh, for those who up to now have been strangers to him, we pray that today, He will draw them to himself by his spirit. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.